0: Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella, your host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today I'm joined by Principal Analyst Paul Miller to discuss our 2021 predictions for smart manufacturing. Welcome Paul.
1: Thank you, Jen, thanks for the invitation.
0: Let's start with a little bit of a reflection then of, you know, What happened in 2020 that may have informed your 2021 predictions?
1: There was one big thing that happened in 2020 that really mattered for the manufacturing space. Um, It was was this pandemic. Think back to the early days of 2020. The pandemic was a big thing. Um, For the manufacturing sector, supply chains were massively disrupted. Uh, Remember back to March when none of us could find toilet paper or pasta in shops. Manufacturers had that big time.
0: And were there other things like emerging technologies that, you know, had a moment in time in 2020 that you're sort of seeing, okay, maybe in 2021, this is where something huge is going to happen in the space?
1: Absolutely, yes. I mean, I think as we look across the manufacturing space, things like IoT, the Internet of Things, were already being used. Things like augmented reality were already being used. But as part of the pandemic, we saw these experiments, these proofs of concept become mainstream and the difference between operating and not operating. You know, if you take, for example, augmented reality and uh, remote assistance, we had manufacturers who pre-pandemic you know, would have sent their field service engineers out to maintain those assets in real time for their customers. Pandemic arrived. And suddenly, those field service engineers weren't allowed to cross borders. They weren't allowed to fly. Even if they could get to a customer's facility, the customer would bar the door and not let them in because they they were a, a disease risk. So they needed different approaches to keep operating. And one that really came into its own was this whole notion of remote assistance. So instead of sending an engineer to your customer's factory, you send them a headset or you send them a link to download a simple piece of software to run on their smartphone. And having done that, you can suddenly walk that customer through a repair, or you can walk them through a servicing um, procedure by looking over their shoulder basically and seeing what they see, drawing on the screen and saying, push that button there, and whatever you do, don't press that one. And doing this to, to, to keep in business and to keep operating, And we saw examples uh, like Vestas, Danish uh, wind farm company, sending headsets to their customers and saying, our engineers cannot visit you, but we can help you this way. Our engineers will be at their houses in Denmark and they'll be dialing in remotely and helping you through these repairs. We saw that kind of thing again and again and again. And we also saw it affecting other technologies like, say, 3D printing, which we may get onto in a moment.
0: And so. Before we hit 3D printing, are you making the call that that sort of response will be the norm moving forward? Or will we eventually kind of go back to, you know, in-person is sort of best?
1: I think... It depends on the technology, but one of the things we were absolutely making the call on is that there were a number of technological responses that allowed organizations to keep operating in March, April, May, and, and through now to December. Some of those were, you know, a panicked knee-jerk reaction that all of the users probably say, I hope I never have to do that again. Others of them were better. Um, And you look at things like field service, which we were talking about. Um, The assumption back in January of 2020 was that the way a high-end, high-class industrial manufacturer services its customers is to send a person. And that person turns up, you know, neatly pressed shirt, neatly pressed overall, shiny boots with the, the company's logo on their chest, and that's gold standard service. Actually, the sort of the digitally enabled services we've seen play out were just as good. Sometimes they were better. You know, I've had conversations recently where clients have said, would I rather have you know, the local field service engineer turn up a week on Tuesday in their shiny pressed suit and boots and all the rest of it, or would I actually like to have the expert who designed this thing on a video call this afternoon? Which would you choose? And, and the assumption, I think, you know very much was if companies had tried to move this way on their own, their customers would have assumed they were trying to cut costs and cut corners. Whereas actually, because we were forced to do it, we found that actually it, it works pretty well. And I think this is one of those changes that is not going to go back. Clearly, sometimes an engineer will turn up at your at your site. But 80, 90% of the time, this may be the way to get the job done faster, cheaper, and most importantly, better.
0: Right. Better for the customer. Yeah. And they didn't know that that could be better. So um, that's an interesting point to make. So let's let's dig into 3D printing because you you started to go there. Um, what's happening in the space and sort of in 2020, maybe that will, have, will be informing 2021 and beyond? And again,
1: I think it was one of those, you know, emergency responses. I'm sure, you know, wherever you're listening in the world, you probably saw, you know, a newspaper headline in March or April. Someone near you was three D printing PPE, you know, medical protective equipment. Um, schools just down the road from me were doing it. Uh, my local university was doing it. Their engineering department was printing visors and then working with local schools to have them disseminated out to people who needed it. Um, so, you know, for my, my daughter, it was quite a nice way to get involved and actually, you know, do some good. Um, the point, though, is you know, three D printing doesn't necessarily scale. And so, this particular example in Hull, um, you know, the the, the university was three D printing in the early days as an immediate emergency response. They then kept three D printing to iterate those designs and work out, you know, the best, most efficient way to you know produce a, a face mask. Um, but then once you've got that model working, it doesn't actually make sense to keep 3D printing thousands of those. You take the design, you take it to a, a traditional manufacturer and say, you know, can you injection mold this like you would have done in the past? So recognizing that you know, 3D printing has its place, but it's absolutely not the answer to every problem. And so that's another one of those examples where you know the immediate emergency response in March isn't necessarily how you keep doing it sensibly at scale for the long haul. Um, there was a, an example, I think, in the Wall Street Journal back in April, um, you know, where a, a doctor in the States was saying, you know, we're, we're working with local schools and universities to get the stuff early on, but we're only doing that because we can't bring it in in bulk from our usual suppliers in India, Vietnam, China, or wherever it may be. As soon as those air routes open up again, I'll take the cheaper, you know, Solution that's coming in from abroad.
0: But allowed some agility, some innovation and iteration to your yeah. point, yeah. right? So, you know, it's saving costs on one end as well, but also kind of responding quickly and with yeah. that so agility. Saving
1: costs. And, and most importantly, in March, it was saving lives. lives it was giving right. those medical professionals the protection they needed because they couldn't get it quickly enough any other way.
0: Yeah. Well, and, you know, you sort of touched on this a little bit but obviously supply chains were heavily impacted um in in 2020 so what is the work that's or thinking that's being done you know what is the call that you're making around supply chains um and supply networks in 2021 and 2022 i think the
1: big thing is certainly that shift you you kind of alluded to in the in the question the shift from a supply chain to a supply network and fundamentally manufacturers retailers and everyone else have constantly been trying to balance a few things in their supply chain they've been trying to balance cost reliability efficiency predictability and a range of other factors and i think you know the general impression is we probably skewed too far towards cost it was about getting stuff as cheaply as possible And so you had very potentially very brittle supply chains. You were bringing things in from Southeast Asia, um, nothing wrong with that, but you were choosing a single provider in Southeast Asia and a single route to get them to your market in Europe or North America. And that was all about optimizing cost. As soon as you have something like a pandemic, or as soon as you have something like a tropical storm or um, anything else that can have a a detrimental impact on that supply route, it breaks. And it breaks sometimes quite catastrophically and quite unpredictably. We've been seeing this for a long time. And I think it then touches onto some broader conversations we've already been seeing around supply strategies, the shift from getting everything just from a single source towards multi-sourcing to give you some flexibility to give you some resilience. That carries through and becomes more important because of the pandemic. We also then see growing interest in
0: nearshoring
1: some of those capabilities. Instead of getting everything from the cheapest source on the other side of the planet, let's recognize that actually sometimes it makes sense to source locally in the first instance, and other times it makes sense to have a local backup, which may be more expensive because labor costs are higher, But you need to have it ready to go so that if your traditional supplier uh, is cut off for some reason, you're able to switch and and pick up the phone and get someone local to to step in and and fill the gap. And all of that relies on data fundamentally. It uh, relies you to be able to understand what parts you need. It relies on you being able to understand what you're going to need today and tomorrow and next week to start making sensible predictions about where you're going to source stuff from. Uh, So you're not holding more stock than you need to, but also so that you're not too dependent on that single airplane being able to land at the airport tonight. Uh, So having visibility into what goes on there. And then sometimes beginning to share that data with peers, competitors, and other players in the supply chain so that you're able to identify problems up front. Uh, and potentially say, you know, a particular supplier we've been working with is seeing a drop off in quality. Uh, So maybe we want to look elsewhere. Maybe we want to inform others to look elsewhere too. And so we're seeing growing interest in sharing that data through various networks to allow everyone to be making those informed decisions.
0: It strikes me that there's a different skill set to be needed to support that transition from your traditional supply chain to this thinking of a of a network and being informed by data. So, talk a little bit about that that sort of the the talent component of of what you of that prediction that you just mentioned. It's huge.
1: Yeah, you know, talent. Comes into all of these, of course. You know, the ability to reskill and upskill a workforce is critically important. And in the supply chain space, yes, you know, it's not just about managing a single supplier. It's not just about optimizing everything for cost, as we were saying earlier, but being able to bring in some of those data science skills, being able to bring in, you know, some of that ability to forecast and predict what might happen, but also actually, you know, bringing in. Perhaps increased accountability and flexibility down on the plant floor or down or down on the loading dock, you know rather than saying the computer says you must do X, y, and Z, allowing that, that plant manager or loading manager or supply chain manager to take a little bit of responsibility and, and creativity and say, we're facing an unexpected problem. Uh, let me make the call. And flex around it, and we saw you know, one really good example of this um, early in the pandemic. It was in one one of the international newspapers back in May, and it was um, a pharmaceutical company called Reckitts, uh, and they had a plant in India, and were struggling because of the the pandemic situation in the country at the time. And local managers had the autonomy to start making local decisions, and they were able to say things like, you know, we need a particular component. Our traditional supplier cannot give us that and our procurement system can't flex fast enough to get it from somewhere else. So let's go to you know, a local manufacturer who can give us what we need and trade. You know, If you give me the part I need, I'll give you 100 litres of um, disinfectant because that's what my factory is making. And being able to do that and have that creativity allowed that plant to keep operating in a way that otherwise it wouldn't enable to. And we need to see much more of that.
0: Mm, Very interesting. And I'm sort of picking up on, you know, some of these themes of resilience and creativity and just thinking back to a conversation we had with, with Bobby Cameron and Ali Bondi about sort of your tech strategy as a whole, right, very much, you know, uh, syncing with with the themes that they've been talking about yeah, there, which well. is
1: really good, of course. You know, Bobby's modeling is based on reality because he's yep. having these conversations with clients too, and he's seeing this for real, and then abstracting it to come up with the models. You know, he was talking to you about.
0: Yeah, great. So one of these predictions I is so interesting to me in terms of you know protecting the brand and how um as a marketer this is always interesting to me but just how important this will be for manufacturers um you know moving forward and just being transparent and you know how they're sourcing products and things so can you maybe touch on that one a little bit paul
1: yeah it's certainly becoming you know, critically important we've seen things like fair trade in the consumer space for you know for a long time but for manufacturers Where their supply chain reaches to, where their raw materials come from is becoming critically important. Uh, I was uh, watching a presentation this morning from um, a a car company called Polestar and they're electric cars. uh, But what was interesting isn't the electric car. What was interesting was the work they're doing around things like blockchain to be able to reliably and um, predictably and repeatably source where the cobalt is coming from for the batteries. Being able to say this has not come from you know uh, conflict areas. This has not been uh, mined by children, in, which we see in some markets. Uh, that kind of visibility, and for them, they were saying, you know, this is a critical part of how they want to associate their brand. They want their brand to appear sustainable, and you know. Um, conflict-free and, and challenge-free. Uh, they've even got you know, vegan interiors, they say inside the cars, you know, as another you know, way, way of playing into this conversation. But that that requirement to have visibility into where all the pieces in your in your product come from is, is very important here uh, from a, a brand and ethics point of view. We're also seeing governments start to play a role. So, you know, in some markets, a government might say, you know, 30% of the product must must be sort of home sourced, um, or cannot be sourced from certain markets you know, we we're, we're uncomfortable dealing with. And again, you're know, being able to demonstrate that visibility is going to be more and more important for these brands uh, in the manufacturing space. And again, like with supply chain, it's all going to be driven by data. You know, being able to reliably prove that the cobalt comes from where it said it did. You know, you you don't want some uh, unscrupulous supplier three layers down in the chain sticking a, a badge on it that says, you know, cobalt mined in Canada when actually it came from somewhere entirely different. Mm-hmm. So how do you track that? How do you prove it? And how do you then share that data with other players in the, in the chain as well? And again, you're know, with with the data piece, it's being able to pass some of that data down chain and up chain, you know both you know f- from your suppliers, but also then out to your customers, out to your partners. Being able to allow them to see that you've done what you said you would do, and that you stand by those those brand attributes, which is important, but also that you stand by your legal, ethical, and commercial responsibilities also important, you know, that fair trade banana you go and buy, you know, in the supermarket, just because it's got a fair trade sticker on it doesn't mean it's fair trade. So how do you know it is?
0: And are you finding that the manufacturers are at like a leadership level saying this is important to us and our firm and therefore kind of agitating for the transparency or is it like the likes of the government governments requiring this transparency is it a combination of both like what is really driving this desire or you know requirement for for transparency and sort of value alignment i guess
1: I think in, t- in terms of sourcing components, um, it's partly government-driven, um, but also partly being driven by these organisations, particularly you know the likes of Polestar that we were talking about before, who are saying this is part of who we want to be, um, and so they're they're setting out their stall very clearly and saying this is part of us. Um, I think though, as, as you look more broadly. Uh, it's being driven as well by by customers. You know the requirement to meet the the green agenda. Uh, Bosch, you know the German manufacturer, very clearly saying our plants in Germany are already carbon neutral. We're we're setting very bold, very ambitious targets to make all our plants around the world carbon neutral. Schneider Electric saying something very similar. You know the French French company, and comes back to data again. In the Bosch example. They're using the, their own IoT platform to monitor the assets inside a plant. And it'll do the obvious easy stuff. You know That um, compressor on the other side of the plant is on. It's drawing power. Nobody's used it for an hour. So why is it on? You know, flash up a, a, a light, go and switch it off. You'll save a tiny little bit of power by doing so. More interestingly is when you start to look at the use of those assets throughout the plant, throughout the day. So maybe you have an asset that takes half an hour to warm up and then you run it for an hour and it takes 15 minutes to cool down. Then four hours later, you do it again. and Four hours later, you do it again. Actually, why not just warm it up once, run it for three hours and then turn it off and you save an hour of warm-up time every time you do that. But you need to have a vi- visibility into how the asset is used, how other assets around it Feed into it, you know. Does something else have to do the first piece of work before the component's ready to move along? And understanding what the workflows look like to start optimizing that power use. And with Bosch, you know, they've very clearly succeeding there. But it's data-driven, and it's also, you know, driven from the very top, the Bosch board saying we must be carbon neutral here. What do we have to do to get there?
0: So. Obviously, the pandemic has impacted, you know, workers were working from home today. How has that impacted manufacturers? Is there some sort of remote working that has been happening in in 2020 and we'll see stick in 2021 and and beyond? Um, So what are the impacts there?
1: Manufacturing clearly struggled a bit more than you know, white-collar workers in an right. office. For, for us, we picked up our laptop and we came home and, and didn't really notice any difference. Um, actually, the coffee was better at home, wasn't it? <laughs> and, you know, so, so life was better when we were working from home. As a manufacturer, that's not necessarily the case. You, you need to be able to work with a large machine, a, a, a large production line that you cannot put in your bag and take home. So for manufacturers, there was clearly a requirement for some people to be able to get close to the assets. Um, However, what we found was, you know, real interest in connecting those assets. So again, back to IoT, the Internet of Things, um, to give you remote visibility into what those assets were doing Um, and to give you some some ability to control those assets from afar as well. Uh, So... If it's simply starting and stopping a process, you you can do that at the push of a button remotely once those assets are connected. There may still be a requirement for some people to get in close to the assets to replace consumables, to do servicing and maintenance, those those kinds of tasks. But you're reducing the number of people that have to be in the space, which makes it easier to manage things like social distancing. We're also seeing your growing interest in automation Uh, both in terms of the physical automation, robots, but also software automation. So things like RPA, robotic process automation, to try to standardize and streamline some of those processes in software. And some factories can run almost completely remotely. They're called lights out factories. And one example of that is a, a Chinese maker of robots called FANUC. And their robot factory is run by robots, you know, which is you know, partly good PR, but also an interesting way of, of you know, delivering uh, those processes more efficiently. And some manufacturing processes lend themselves to that better than others. So where we are at the moment is um, manufacturers of all kinds switch to remote monitoring very quickly during the pandemic. Uh, they'd all been buying machines that could be remotely monitored and remotely controlled for years. But a lot of them didn't actually switch them on. You know, they didn't because there were were people in the plant. So why bother? So they flicked that switch and gave themselves remote monitoring and an element of remote control. What they're now doing is trying to understand how much of that sticks. Um, How much can you change a process to reduce the number of times a human has to touch anything? How much can you let robots do most of the work? Um, And we're seeing some really nice examples of that, again, around things like social distancing, where you might split the day into a series of shifts. And the first shift is operated by humans, much like they would have done it last year. Um, Then you have a second shift where the robots take over and they can do those standardized, repeatable, safe things, you know, that a robot can just repeat the same task over and over again. And while they're doing that, other robots are walking around the factory and they're spraying disinfectant and they're shining UV light and all these other things to disinfect the space. And then the next shift, the humans come back in. The factory has been cleaned so it's safe for them and they can then do all those human tasks that the robots aren't very good at. You know, picking up the mess the robot made, servicing the asset, preparing things for the next robotic shift. And this sort of intersection between the two, I think is, you know, potentially a model that sticks longer term.
0: So as you're looking to 2021, and um, obviously speaking with, with clients and, and helping them prep for the year ahead, what are, you know, what's the kind of one to two things that you are saying, this is table stakes, must have, for your thinking, for your strategy, for your operations and in, in 2021.
1: I think we're seeing the obvious importance of that uh, those connected assets. so mm-hmm. existing investments in IOT being doubled down on. Um, and you know, to, to a lot of clients now if they're buying new assets saying, you know I, if it doesn't come connectable, I don't want it. Uh, and then for their existing assets, those older machines that could be 30 or 40 years old in some cases, they're increasingly looking at retrofitting sensors of various kinds. And there have been announcements just this week from some of the cloud providers about you know, providing low cost sensors that you can retrofit to, to those existing assets. So that is going to play out for sure. Uh, the other piece, I think, is right back to the beginning of what we were saying about remote assistance and augmented reality which for a long time seemed like a gimmick. Um, but realistically, this delivers real value in allowing you to have visibility into a, a complex and distributed set of machines uh, and being able to maintain those uh, cheaper, better, faster, um, and, and in a more customer-facing and customer-helping way. So I think that's another one that is absolutely going to stick for the long term. And more broadly than that, and just to you know to wrap up, it's recognizing the importance of flexibility and agility in everything these manufacturers are doing. The ones that coped well were the ones that said, "Forget the hierarchy, forget the twenty-seven thousand forms to you know to change your coffee supplier. Just do it, and you know ask ask for forgiveness rather than asking for permission." and, and be accountable so if you've done something terrible you should be held accountable for it but if you've done the right thing and if you've looked at the context and the environment around you and made a local decision that should be rewarded and that should be um, you know, exaggerated and used elsewhere as well so that flexibility and agility i think is the thing that really comes through
0: excellent well thank you for joining us today paul thank you If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.